each business is unique and operated individually of others in the same industry. What they have in common is the potential path to success. Welcome to The Second Stage with your hosts, Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. In today's program, we'll address the obstacles that many businesses find on that path to success and discuss what entrepreneurs and their businesses are doing to stay ahead of the curve. Now, here is Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. Welcome to the show, The Second Stage. This is Jeff Cadlick. My partner, Brendan Anderson, is out of the office today. Uh, we've got a great show prepared for you. Uh, in honor of National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, we've got a show here about privacy and data security. Is your business prepared? Our guest is Kim Farincheck, practice leader of executive risk at Oswald Companies, which can be found on Twitter, at Oswald Companies. And also their website is www.oswaldcompanies.com. Kim, as I said, is the Vice President and Practice Leader of Executive Risk at Oswald Companies uh, with specializations in management liability, professional liability, cybersecurity, environmental liability, and fidelity coverages. Uh, She combines her product and market knowledge to solve business challenges that arise daily. Welcome to the second stage, Kim. How are you? I'm great, Jeff. How about yourself? I'm doing great. I've had the good fortune of uh, working with Kim for, geez, well over a decade, I think, at this point. And uh, she has uh, been always, to me, I'll let our listeners decide, but to me, very, very impressive and very knowledgeable. And uh, given your expertise in cybersecurity and, and what's going on this month, uh, I thought it was timely uh, timely to have you on our show. Well, great I appreciate being here, Jeff, and appreciate all your kind words as well. <laughs> well, well deserved, well deserved. So, as I was preparing for the show, uh, I just looked up cybersecurity. I'm looking for my notes here. Uh, cybersecurity challenges, and uh, the the first one that initially came to mind was was Yahoo, and uh, mm-hmm. um, you know the 500 million users that. Uh, where were there's the data breach there, but then uh, very quickly uh, there was a data breach that I was reading about uh, with the IRS. Uh, they mm-hmm. discovered it uh, not until February of this year. Didn't announce it until February of this year, but it happened in May of 2015, and it seemed to take months and months for them to realize it. And then in March of this year, Verizon announced that there's a data breach of about 1.5 million users' information. Uh, University of Central Florida. Uh, 65,000 existing and former uh, staff and uh, students uh, had a breach, and we all know about Target. Uh, And in fact, um, this uh, little company in Cleveland, Ohio called Evolution Capital Partners has had attempted breaches a couple times now. So it seems to kind of be everywhere, uh, and no one seems to be uh, immune to, to what is going on. So I guess uh, I know evolution's just catching up. Uh, so, so how prevalent is 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 cybersecurity problems today? Well, I mean, as you as you demonstrated uh, through a wide range of industries and size companies, the largest ones are breached. The government is breached. Um, small companies are breached. There used to be a perception that if you weren't a large company like a Yahoo or a Verizon um, or even large educational institutions or financial institutions, uh, that you were somewhat immune. But the reality is uh, hackers are quite... Uh, adept at not only uh, attack, attacking these large companies, but also smaller ones. And a lot of times the smaller ones are a lot easier to get into because they do not have the resources um, that the larger companies do have. In fact, they can live and be inside of an, an entity for a very long period of time before they're even detected at all. Um, and the challenge for uh, anyone who senses that they may have had a privacy event um, is that the current uh, laws and regulations surrounding the cybersecurity space are largely controlled by states and not there's no federal standards. So it's hard to determine whether or not, one, you've had a breach because sometimes it takes months of forensics to determine that. Um, and then if you do have a breach, then what state laws or federal laws do you need to try to um, comply with? And that can be a very difficult web to make your way through in terms of just trying to remain compliant with those um, requirements that are in place by states and sometimes the federal government as well. So I was reading in a, a Ernst & Young report uh, that came out a little while back that was saying reported breaches of information security are rising annually by 50% uh, 
which mm-hmm. I guess, given all the what I just read about and you're you're talking about, doesn't surprise me. But just as an estimate for how seriously people are taking this, uh, what percentage of companies out there uh, have some kind of insurance for so mm. the products that we're going to talk about today? How much "quote unquote" penetration do they have in mm-hmm. in the market? Uh, just as an estimate for how many how people are taking this seriously. Well, I think that depends on the industry that you're in. So if you look at financial services industries, that's almost 100 percent because they're such high risk. They're so highly regulated. Um, that they do need to carry the, it's very evident that they need to carry the insurance. Also, um, educational institutions are very aware of that and very sensitive to it. So you see a much higher penetration in that space as well. In areas like manufacturing, uh, and even in some uh, times in the cyber um, software providers, things uh, clients like that tend to have a false sense of security relative to their own. Um, vulnerabilities in this area, so they think that they're either uh, in good enough shape that they can manage through that situation for less than the cost of an insurance product. Um, when you look at the cost of the product and you couple that with the deductibles, they think, well, if something were to happen, I could probably get out of the incident with a lot less cash, but the reality is, is a lot of times you don't, and um, really folks are just starting to uh, adopt this product at a much more accelerated rate. In 2016, we're seeing than in prior years in those, I would call, non-high um, adoption rate spaces. You get outside of financial institutions, healthcare, um, retail, and education, then the penetration rate was significantly dropping. But we're starting to see them adopt policies um, much more uh, broadly and that, for a couple of reasons. One is the policies have gotten much more valuable. Um, this is the first really large area or first area where the insurance industry can capture market share in terms of new product in probably 20 years. There's been a lot of enhanced products, but the insurance industry hasn't launched a truly unique product in probably 20 years as unique as cyber. So it offers insurance carriers unique opportunity to capture market share. So they not only are trying to be as aggressive as they can on pricing, but they're looking for ways to compete and differentiate their product. So we're seeing adoption rates go up because all of a sudden, um, some areas that used to be supplemented are no longer supplemented. Uh, some areas where underwriters weren't previously willing to give the full limit, say, in regulatory cover or the full limit for business inter- interruption or the full limit for um, your exposures that your vendors present to you. So if you choose a vendor and that vendor has a breach and it puts you at risk, then now the underwriters are starting to be able to co- uh, offer coverage for that. All of those enhancements make the product far more valuable to the client and they make the insurance spend make a lot more sense. Hmm. So the transferring the risk off their balance sheet to an insurance contract makes a, lot more sh- makes a lot more sense when that transfer is more holistic versus a policy that may have had some holes in it before. Uh, the other thing the insurance carriers are doing, similar to the area of employment practices, they're offering a more robust um, suite of services, loss prevention services before your breach to help you get prepared for the breach to help guide you through or demystify the breach preparedness that a company needs to go through to be prepared for when the breach does happen. So if you buy an insurance contract, you then have access to an individual who can uh, kind of guide you through that process in terms of prioritizing first you should do this and then you should do this. And oh, by the way, here's our list of preferred vendors that can actually help you to execute that. Um, so both in terms of the services they're providing and in terms of the four corners of the policy, the breadth of coverage, those have all gotten much broader in the last five or six years. Um, and it's exciting to see as an insurance broker because that's a much better value proposition you're delivering to your clients. So uh, this this timing is uh, this conversation is is great, and it sounds like the the insurance industry has really kind of uh, wrapped its arms around this opportunity by providing competitive and comprehensive products that make it sense for people as small as Evolution to go out and and obtain some coverage, and also large organizations to outsource. Uh, you know, coverage to insurance carriers and not continue to do it alone. Uh, but, but let me step back here because you know we we originally started talking about certain kinds of industries. In the industries that you're talking about, like healthcare and financial services, they hold everybody has private information, but that's private information of of uh, of a personal nature. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, can we s- step back and say w- define 
what private information is as it relates to cybersecurity. Sure. So you've you've already defined the two fairly obvious spaces, and that's the personal identifiable information like social security number, driver's license, credit card, bank accounts, passports, that kind of thing, and then healthcare information, which I think everyone's familiar based on all of the paperwork they have to sign with the passing of HIPAA when they go to their physician's offices. The things that people don't think about, though, are things like confidential business information. And so that would be your own corporate information as well as corporate information that you may hold for your clients or sometimes they're they're referred to as third-party assets in your care. Not dollars, really, but uh, information that you may have to gather about third parties that may be confidential in nature just so that you can provide your services to that third party. When that information gets breached, it's very difficult to try to um, put a value on what that is, and so that's when your insurance contract can kind of step in and help you wade through those waters. Hmm. So um, what are the primary driving exposures that, I mean, are there certain things that companies do that, that uh, like risky behaviors or actions that these companies are taking? Um, or, you know, that would make them more susceptible? Or is it just, I guess it's just anybody, uh, given what we were talking about before, that, that uh, makes them a susceptible target to, mm-hmm. to, to these uh, cyber threats? Right. So, I mean, hackers continue to be the number one cause, but folks, tend, and, and I think a lot of the cyber efforts tend to focus on keeping the bad guys out. Uh, but the reality is, is the second most common um, I guess, risk area is your own employees. And that's not just your rogue employees who maybe are getting access to areas they shouldn't get access to or are taking your personal information and making it public, but it's it's just employees being human. So it's employees uh, maybe not even knowing what private information is, not knowing they shouldn't have printed a document and, and taken it home or, um, or not knowing that they should not have shared information, some corporate information of a third party, and then employees clicking on links um, and, and re- uh, resulting in a phishing event for the organization. So employees being inhuman uh, still is one of the leading causes of cyber in terms of lost laptop or uh, lost flash drive, that sort of thing. Um, and I would, just, I would just put that in the bucket of uh, careless behavior. And there are things employers can do to modify that behavior. They can educate their employees. They can um, run exercises, phishing exercises, where you know, everyone uh, has the opportunity to click on a link, and uh, if that link is a bad link, then the, the employees who click on it then uh, have to go through some additional training, and the next time they run that phishing exercise, the numbers go down significantly. Um, so there's things that you can do to help your employees be uh, better employees. And then vendor management is a huge emerging issue. Um, you need to select your vendors with um, sufficient due diligence, uh, we always recommend that you select a vendor that is um, a Main Street vendor and really not one that doesn't have a long track record because if you were to then have a breach related to those vendor services, uh, the AG may not look at you as favorably uh, because you maybe chose the lowest bidder in the room. You want to make sure that your vendors are definitely qualified to do their work, and you want to make sure that you're contractually protected with your vendors. So do you have indemnification agreements in your vendor contracts that says, that say if you, they are to have a breach, that they will then indemnify you? And then is it that, that indemnification backed by more than the assets of that vendor? Is it also backed by a cyber policy? So does your contract say that they have to carry privacy, uh, a cyber privacy policy that helps uh, them to back their promise in their contracts? So I know when I'm getting insurance and they ask me if um, I have an alarm system or, or a sprinkler system in my house for fires or in, in healthcare, you know, if you've got employees that are, are walking and exercising and non-smokers and things like that, are there certain things that companies can do from a training perspective or other things that they can do to mitigate the costs of insurance or the costs of risk? Yeah, they, I mean, there's, there's, there are certain things that they can do to help get more favorable pricing. Um, I think the bigger benefit you're going to get is more favorable terms and conditions. So an example, a recently brokered account we had was a company had just put in place a vendor management program. It was able to articulate to the underwriters what they're doing to manage this third-party exposure because it's very difficult. An underwriter can look at your organization and say, wow, you've got great you know, controls in terms of what you do for your employees and in terms of uh, what you do from an IT encryption standpoint. 
um, and you know, are you NIST certified? And all those ducks can be in a row, but it's really difficult for an underwriter to ch- underwrite to those third-party vendors that you have. So the best they can do is ask clients, so what controls do you have in place? And this client was able to articulate, these are the controls, these are the standards, this is what we require. And on that particular situation, instead of getting extensions to cover breaches that come from defined third parties, they actually just offered an extension to cover all their vendors. Uh, not their vendors' breaches, but breaches that uh, affect their insured based on a breach that the vendor had. So that's a pretty nice enhancement. Um, mm-hmm. And it, you know, it more fully protects your client, because if the vendor has a loss, then your insurance company immediately jumps in to help indemnify you, and then they will subrogate against the vendor, of course, but um, but you immediately have indemnification. You don't have to worry about then have, going after the vendor and having them defend you and pay for your forensics and that sort of thing. You've got the coverage. So, Kim, could you remind everybody on the show uh, what subrogation means? Uh, yeah, so sub- subrogation is uh, a fairly straightforward where an insurance company um, pays for your loss, but then they realize that this loss um, was brought upon you because a third party did something negligent, and then they uh, will take action against that third party to then make themselves whole because it's the third party's uh, it's the third party's um, loss or fault uh, in that situation. We're with our guest, Kim Ferencheck, practice leader of executive risk at Oswald Companies. Oswald can be found at, on Twitter at Oswald Companies and also on our website, www.oswaldcompanies.com. So, uh, Kim, can you talk a little bit about what, where all these exposures are going? What are some of the emerging exposures and emerging risks that are out there? Sure. Jeff, earlier in the show, you said that um, the cyber attacks are up 50%, and, and that's, that's absolutely true. But the question, the question is, where are those attacks coming from? So the, the place that most attacks are coming from in 2016 is in the ransomware situation. So that's a situation where someone hacks into your system, and they either destroy your data or they freeze your data. And they say, in order to get the code to unencrypt the data, to get access to it, you need to pay a ransom. It's like kidnap and ransom, but instead of taking um, instead of taking possession of a person, they take possession of your data. And um, the number of incidents involving ransomware in the cyberspace nearly doubled from 2015 to 2016, and it increased almost five times from 2010 to 2015. So it's a very real threat. It's also very hard for underwriters to underwrite to. Um, so what they look at is what are your internal controls and what kind of investments have you made in terms of keeping your data safe. Um, and the other challenge the insurance companies have is when to pay the ransom and when not to pay the ransom. And the reality is is that most of the time they end up paying the ransom because the cost to restore the data and, and to rebuild your data is almost always larger than the amount of the ransom. And the hackers know that. They know how to price the ransom. So they price it less than that cost. And so right now, it's a, it's a cash cow for these bad guys out on the streets. So that's, that's probably the number one space or area that we see claims coming from today. Um, another emerging area is the TCPA, or Telephone Consumer Protection Act. Um, and those... Um, those incidences have grown from 40% from 2014 to 2015, and they're expected to grow even higher in 2016. So that's more of a regulatory issue um, relative to cybersecurity. Um, and then we're seeing the regulatory environment in general, is continu- it continues to evolve. Um, it's, it's typically not very business-friendly. Um, there, there really isn't a whole lot of effort, and uh, the underwriters aren't overly optimistic in a consistent state requirement or a federal standard relative to um, managing uh, notification laws and, not- what the, you know, when do you need to notify and who do you need to notify and what does a notification notice say? That, that's all different by state. So if you're involved in 10 or 12 different states or maybe more and you have a breach, when you notify, when you have to notify, what the letter needs to say is different in every state and that makes it extremely challenging. We don't really see a a very strong effort in Washington to try to, to try to unify those efforts for our clients. Probably because it's moving really, really quickly. It's pretty scary mm-hmm. stuff. So I uh, want to remind everybody you listen to the show, The Second Stage. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at 
evolution underscore CP. You can join the discussion, uh, hashtag the 2ND stage. That's hashtag the second stage. And you can email us at the second stage at evolutioncp.com. Also want to thank our sponsor, RSM, the leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on small and mid-sized businesses nationwide with more than 6,700 people in 75 U.S. cities. So, uh, Kim, who in the company is most often in charge of or should be in responsible for cybersecurity? And, and maybe that depends on the size of the company. Right. I was going to say, in a perfect world, it would be the chief information technology officer. Um, but for smaller companies, that's not typically the case. And uh, many times you have a, an individual who is wearing many hats, uh, especially if you're, you're a smaller company, and they're just trying to um, make sure that the company is safe enough that they don't have a hack, and that can be pretty challenging. So that person, the person that we see on our end is anyone, might be the CFO, it might be um, the COO, it might be the HR manager, um, and, and really none of those folks, you know, that's not their full-time day job. So um, this is just an area that um, they're trying to get their arms around, they're trying to manage as aggressively as possible, uh, but the reality is is they don't have the time to dedicate to make it their number one focus area. Sure, sure. And and, um, how does somebody stay current with cybersecurity issues? Um, It's difficult to remain current with cybersecurity issues. I've got a whole team of people that that help me do that, and I still sometimes feel like we can't stay on top of things. Um, I would recommend that uh, they engage with a third party to do an annual checkup uh, relative to their cyber policies, procedures, and if you know there's resources that are available through either an insurance carrier or Oswald companies can certainly direct you to some local vendors that can help you um, at least get started. Say, okay, here's a snapshot of where you are. This is where you really need to be, and then kind of outline it for you in phases. So your most important thing might be getting an incident response plan in place, so that if something were to happen, you know what to do. You have kind of a playbook uh, on on who needs to be notified and who's responsible for what. Um, and then, uh, then just actually playing through that playbook and actually practicing it. Um, but trying to track what the emerging exposures are pretty difficult. The best you can do is have a proactive uh, risk management program in place to try to protect yourself from you know, what's going to be coming from behind the next corner where you, you just you can't see. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting point that you bring up, Kim. Kim basically, having a disaster response team, just like you would have, you know, if there was a fire in your building or if mm-hmm. there was uh, an injury or so- something like that, you really need to have a disaster response team associated with cybersecurity, particularly if there is a ransomware situation or something like that. Right. I mean, um, knowing what to do is huge, and, and not being through it the first time live is also huge. Um, you'll find out once you put an incident response plan in place and you practice it the first couple of times, it, don't be surprised if it doesn't go off well at all. It really does. Um, and then, you know, the important thing is the people who are involved in that be very aware of what to do because it's going to happen likely when you're away from the office or on a weekend and you're not going to have access to, you know, they, they may have locked down your files. You're not going to have access to your computer. You may not have access to paper if you printed it. Um, and so you kind of have to know what to do at the top of your head, um, which is hard because, again, this isn't the full-time job that people have. This is something, this is one of the many responsibilities that mm-hmm. they have and trying to remember during a stressful time what to do and what the call chain is and who to be notified um, and who your outside providers are can be very challenging, which is why I recommend to smaller companies who don't have dedicated chief information technology officers, you know, at least consider engaging um, the help of your cyber insurance provider, um, because if you are to have a situation or a circumstance, you never call it a breach, you can reach out to a breach coach who will then lay out the game plan for determining, you know, whether or not you do have a breach and, um, you know, coach you on things like this is the attorney you should call. And, and you want to call an attorney who is a cyber expert attorney, not the attorney who puts in place your general contracts, because we've seen far too many times uh, where our clients have a situation, they reach out to their attorney who puts together their cyber contracts, and he gives them advice that two weeks later turns out to not be great advice, because um, very conservative advice is to immediately notify. And we've had several clients who um, reacted and reacted on, reacted on the advice of their attorneys and, and sent out notifications saying we've had a situation, we've had a breach, we're investigating it, and then two weeks later they determine 
through forensics, which is one of the most important coverages you can have, um, that they actually didn't have a breach at all. And so then they're sending out notices again saying, actually, we didn't have a breach, but in the meantime, you're dealing with reputational injury um, and trying to restore the faith of, of your client base, which can be difficult. So the breach coach will help to um, take the situation and uh, lay out a game plan for determining what's what's going to keep you compliant with the government, what you need to do in terms of forensics, what you need to tr- do in terms of public relations, and they'll keep you from reacting uh, in a way that doesn't hurt you in the long run but keeps you compliant. Lots of scary stuff <laughs> that you articulated there. <laughs> so we just have a few minutes before you take a break here, but how, uh, when you get that phone call from from clients, how do they typically find out that there was a breach? I mean, is it is it that money was stolen? I mean, how does it how does it present itself? Um, it's usually a lot of times it's unauthorized access or systems aren't working. Um, we've had a couple situations where our clients were held ransom, um, and they called and you know they had a basically a, ra- a ransom threat saying we've gotten access to your information or. Um, we had one situation was a white-collar professional firm who had hired a vendor who was um, performing some back-office activities, and uh, one of their clients got a note saying, you know, we're, you know, my, my identity must remain anonymous. I am writing to you to let you know that your firm and your firm's vendor uh, has been reckless with personal information and attached our tax documents that demonstrate how reckless they've been and, you know, call me and we will uh, go after these folks and, and bring justice. Um, but my identity must remain anonymous and you can reach me at fill in the blank. Well, but luckily this uh, insured had a good enough relationship with the client that the client faxed the note to them and said, what's going on? Um, and, you know, long story short, the vendor actually had a rogue employee who um, used live data that was used for training, which that's really foolish to use live data for training, but the, this particular vendor had used live data for training, and that rogue employee took it, uh, gathered as much as he could, and, and tried to get some um, some cash in a ransom situation. And long story short, uh, they had just bought a cyber policy, and the forensics proved that the uh, breach was limited to just a few identities, which was wonderful. Um, and that the breach did, in fact, happen at the vendor level and not uh, at their level. So, um, those are the kind of that's the kind of support system you can have. I mean, by I got the call at eight o'clock in the morning, and by one o'clock, they were on the phone with. Uh, they had already been contacted by a breach coach, uh, by an attorney, as well as a PR firm, and were given advice on not only how to manage the potential harm with their clients, but how to manage the relationship with the vendor, because you just can't turn off your vendor relationships overnight. So it gets really tricky when you think the breach may have originated at one of your vendors, um, how you manage through, you can't just shut down your operation. So managing through that situation can be um, a little bit difficult. For sure. You're listening to the second stage and our guest, Kim Farinchek. Uh, the Oswald Company's practice leader of executive risk. Uh, you can uh, follow uh, Oswald at, uh, on Twitter at Oswald Companies and also on the website at www.oswaldcompanies.com. We're going to take a quick break here on the second stage. When we come back, uh, uh, Kim is going to talk a little bit more about the enterprise-wide costs of cybersecurity and some of the ins- insurance solutions that are available. Thanks for tuning in to the second stage. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member. McGladry is about building relationships. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of, a team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance Tax Consulting. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to thesecondstage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. Welcome back to the show, The Second Stage. This is Jeff Cadlick. My partner, Brendan Anderson, is out of the office today. Uh, I want to remind everyone that each week we want to provide actionable advice and have you continue the dialogue through comments and questions on our blog at evolutioncp.com. We want to hear what works and what doesn't. We want to create a true community of entrepreneurs helping entrepreneurs. You can listen to this episode and all of our older episodes on voiceamerica.com, or you can go to iTunes, search podcast for the second stage. I'd like to thank all of our iTunes listeners. As you are listening, please don't forget to rate and review us. Uh, So we're here with our guest, Kim Ferencheck. Um, she is a practice leader of executive risk at Oswald Companies. And uh, when we left the last segment, we were talking about um, we we're we we're tempting our audience with uh, your 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 discussion around enterprise-wide costs of cybersecurity and what insurance solutions might be available, and really what the costs of those uh, insurance solutions are. Right. Thanks, Jeff. So uh, if you think about it globally, uh, which is what enterprise risk means in in the insurance world, um, it's not just the cost of the insurance contract. So we step back and try to explain to our clients that um, it's not just the uh, the upfront cost, but it's the things that you do to help make you um, less of a target. So your investment in cyber preparedness is significant. Um, So IT costs that are associated with that, just the talent alone that you need to attract um, in terms of a qualified IT professional, uh, can be quite expensive, but but definitely worth the protection you would get from um, someone who's trying to wear more than one hat. The tabletops that you may run, so that we were talking a little bit before the break about practicing your incident response plan, and a tabletop isn't designed to do precisely that, because um, the testing of the plan is, is really where the plan starts to bring value when you actually know what you're supposed to do versus reading a piece of paper. Um, the dollars that firms spend in terms of detection and discovery of breaches, because discovering that a bad guy's in your system earlier is, is very important. You don't want them to be in your system longer. And the average day that a bad guy's in a system is, is, is somewhere between 60 and 90 days. So most times it's difficult to tell when someone has hacked your system. Um, and then if you have an event, the notification and public relations costs are immediately uh, immediately hit your firm. You immediately have to engage in third parties to help you navigate through those waters um, and, dam- and, and minimize any kind of reputational damage that you might have. The long-term damages are more like regulatory fines and penalties, potential business income loss. So this was an area where um, for a very long time everyone thought they would never have a business income loss related to cyber, but the reality is as more and more uh, of our businesses are, are reliant on more sophisticated technology. Business income loss is no longer just a direct physical damage loss as it historically has been. It can be a cyber hit as well. Um, so the good news is, is there's insurance products that help to uh, offset all of those costs um, or most of those costs. Uh, certainly uh, the products have become more affordable. As a product has evolved, the coverages have become much more robust. And right now, for for smaller firms, um, they can usually secure fairly meaningful coverage for around $5,000 per year. And what that typically gets um, a firm is um, things like the immediate support should they have a breach, um, meaningful extensions such as um, forensics to help you uh, reconstruct your data is very important. Public relations dollars, um, coverage for those notification expenses, and credit monitoring should anyone take you up on those offers and should you have to offer it. Um, coverage to help you reimburse you for extor- extortion should you have to pay an extortion for ransomware. Um, I would I would just advise the audience to consider, if, if you're looking at a policy that's less than 5000 in premium, it is likely one that has significant holes in it. So, for instance, many times we'll look at a policy that someone else has secured and it's 2500 or 3000 
and there might be a little bit of restoration, data restoration coverage, or there might be a little bit of ransomware, but a lot of times there's none, and if there is some coverage, it's very minimal. Um, and so you want to be able to be sure that should you have a breach, that you have the highest limit in the areas that tend to have the highest losses. And a lot of times insurance companies don't offer that with their first quote out of the gate. They'll, they'll offer you a million dollar for third-party coverage, which is if someone sues you if you have a breach, which is one of the least areas where you see um, dollars paid. But they'll offer you only a 100,000 limit in the area of data restoration or, or only a 100,000 limit in uh, extortion. And those are two of the areas that get hit the most. So, I mean, they're doing it to... Um, try to mitigate their own risk, but um, typically if you ask for those coverages to be extended or enhanced to the full limit, you can get it usually for only $1,000 more um, or maybe $2,000 more depending on where your quote is now. So I always say if it's too good to be true, it likely is. And if you're looking at a policy that's under $3,000, chances are it has a lot of holes in it and um, you might want to take a, a closer look at it. So is there, uh, I mean, would, if I didn't have a cybersecurity policy, are, would I get some coverage under existing policies that I might have out there, like under employment practices, if, if one of my employees was doing something, or uh, just a, a general, uh, general policy? Oh, you asked a, a great question, Jeff. And, and what underwriters are starting to do is put what they call clarification of intent language on policies like employment practices and general liability and property damage like for, for business income. They'll now clarify that a uh, cyber loss is not direct physical damage and it's not covered. Um, and that's because historically when these forms were written 10 or more years ago, they hadn't considered that cyber risk. So they haven't priced for it. They haven't under, underwritten to it. But their forms may not be as tight as they want them to be. And so they're starting to put tighter language on those policies. We're starting to see that more and more to clarify intent, they say. Um, but I would say if you don't have a cyber policy and you have a breach, have your insurance agent pull every form you have. And this is what we do. And we try to find a sliver of coverage here or there. And sometimes you can. I mean, you, you're never going to get the full cover amount. But an example, you specifically said employment practices. There's an extension on that's pretty readily available on employment practices um, that says that if your own employee's personal data is stolen, and we had that happen to one of our clients. It was about January 10th, um, and the IRS notified one of our clients that um, someone had gotten access to their human resource database or human, human resource information system, had access to all the employees' W-2s, and was filing income tax returns um, mm. and getting, trying to get refunds. And so mm. um, if that private information of your employees is breached, some employment practices will uh, indemnify you for those coverages, but not all. Um, so that's you know, one of the areas where you have a little bit of coverage but not a whole lot. It's very limited. Um, it's much better to take a holistic approach and, and just buy a cyber policy and know you're, you have a better chance of having decent coverage. I tell you, sometimes, I mean, some of that stuff is so creative. If some of these folks actually, you know, did something legitimate <laughs> with their skills, they, they would uh, <laughs> probably, yeah, they may be better me. off. I don't know. <laughs> um, that's uh, pretty crafty. Uh, so can we shift a little bit towards defining the most important elements of a cyber risk management program? I mean, what, what, what should they, organizations, like, may, let's take a small company first. Uh, and say a company under 10 million in revenue, uh, you know, mm -hmm. what, what should they have in place and what's reasonable to have that's going to get their biggest bang for their buck? Uh, well, uh, for under 10 million, I would say have them follow the um, National Institute of Standards and Technology um, recommendations, NIST, and you can find out. I think there's a list of about 20 things that you should be doing to keep yourself cyber safe and you can pull those up on NIST.gov. Um, it's great preparedness. At least the IT experts tell me that it is because uh, I'm not an IT uh, expert in, in terms of actual programming and knowing uh, the details of it, but the IT folks say it's great preparedness. And it's also a great defense. If you were to have a breach and you have to go and stand in front of the AG, you can say, hey, look, I was NIST certified. I was following their standards, and I still got breached. So if nothing else, it's a good, stand it's a good defense. And I feel like I'm really... Um, 
harping on it too much, but I cannot underemphasize the importance of a well-written and well-rehearsed incident response plan. Just knowing what to do uh, is very important. And then employee training, which that, that's not that um, cumbersome if, you, if you've already engaged with um, a cyber insurance carrier, they can give you lots of tips on that. They can provide some online assistance for that. So all of those resources are available to you. And then um, if they want to try to conduct what I would call a data um, privacy review, so who has access to what? A lot of times if you just lock down information that people don't need access to, that really helps the unauthorized access risk go away. Um, And, you know, be diligent when someone changes jobs. Don't allow them to keep the same access they had in the prior job because they don't need it in the new job. Sometimes that's hard to give up, but if it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense. Um, and then being very, very disciplined about your vendor uh, selection and, uh, and, and look at your contracts that you have in place with third parties and not just IT vendors, right? These, are, these could be your you know, payroll vendors. They could be um, a miscellaneous business consultant vendor. You can, they can be your accounting and make sure that they have adequate um, standards in place for cybersecurity and that they are agreeing to indemnify you should they lose your personal data and that they've got a cyber policy to back it. Um, so, I, you know, and I say the, one of the, also one of the most important elements is a meaningful cyber coverage, of course. I would be, be bad if I didn't say that because that serves <laughs> as a safety net. <laughs> when something does bad happens and something bad will happen, everyone's going to eventually get hit. It's a safety net should all these other things fail. Um, you know, as, so those are kind of like the tactical things you need to do. The strategic things you need to do is make sure um, that your board of directors is involved in cybersecurity. So, um, and this is coming more to the forefront in this space, uh, really defining what the role of the board of directors are relative to cybersecurity is so important. Um, what we communicate with our clients is that the board must support uh, an entire culture of cyber or, or security awareness, right? So they have to make um, intentional decisions about which risks are to be avoided, uh, which risks are to be accepted, which risks are to be mitigated, and which risks they want to try to transfer. And, you know, the reality is is there's a budget that surrounds all of this uh, in terms of what a company can spend, and so the board of directors can, can help to make those decisions. Um, cybersecurity is absolutely a board-level issue. Um, it's not just an IT issue. It's not an employment practices or human resource issue. Uh, it is a holistic issue, and we definitely see situations where, Companies fare significantly better if everyone realizes that it's an enterprise issue. It's not, it doesn't just sit on one person's desk. And we definitely see much more favorable outcomes when breaches do occur when there's collaboration across the many disciplines. So you've got open communication and everyone's on board uh, from an HR and IT and um, multidisciplinary uh, approach to cybersecurity. Um, relative to the board itself, not many boards have... Uh, individuals that have an IT background sitting on the board to weigh in on these decisions. So, um, companies yeah, that's must where make... that, that's where <laughs> sorry, good job. That's where I was good at you because know, I serve on a lot of boards. And in preparing for this this show, it was you know a little little uh, uh, concerning. I mean, there was a great quote in this 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 uh, paper. One paper I was reading says, "Exhaustively trying to stop breaches is a waste of resources. Companies need to balance appropriate preventative controls mm-hmm. with strong detective capabilities." And at the board level, again, serving on a lot of boards, you know, there's lots of things to talk about. You, you know, we try to limit yep. our board meetings to, you know, four hours because people's brains just turn to mashed potatoes. You know, beyond that, and so within that four-hour period, there's lots of things to cover. I am not the expert, you know, to to talk to about this. I just I couldn't tell you the first thing about. I mean, I literally am one of those guys that, uh, you know, always just is trying to reboot their computer <laughs> if that's not the solution. <laughs> so and just the payoff, you just don't know. I mean, it's hard for executive leadership to invest money, people, and time in unknown and unpredictable things uh, when there's mm-hmm. so many more obvious things that are out there. So. Yeah, in defense of those uh, those guys that sit in those those boardrooms, there's lots of reasons to have not thus far paid attention to this issue. Sure, sure, and and we try to advise our clients. You know, please provide your board with 
access to cyber expertise. Bring in a cyber expert once or twice a year, depending, you know, our financial institutions clients bring them in far more regularly than, you know, a miscellaneous business consultant may bring in an, uh, an IT expert. But um, I think it's the duty of the company to provide their board with um, access to cyber expertise and education. And that's the, I mean, I don't know how other, any other way they can try to exercise uh, reasonable corporate governance if they don't have access to the information. Um, and then I would say that, you know, we look for companies, underwriters will look for the companies um, to have a board that um, spends regular and adequate time on it, but also holds the count- company accountable to getting things done. So the cyber extra comes in and makes recommendation or educates, and then the board decides, well, this is how we want to spend the dollars, and then holds the company accountable for executing that plan. Uh, probably one of the best defenses is, is just to kind of follow that game plan, uh, get educated, uh, decide which areas you want to spend your resources, and then make sure that, that it happens. Um, hmm. You are uh, listening to our guest, Kim Farincheck of Oswald Companies. She can be found at www.oswaldcompanies.com. Uh, you can also follow Oswald Companies on Twitter at Oswald Companies. Uh, and you're also listening to the second stage. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at evolution underscore CP. You can email us at the second stage at evolutioncp.com and follow the discussion on uh, uh, hashtag the second stage. That's the two and D stage. So um, I guess when I when when you we've talked a lot about um, you know different kinds of breaches, but are the perpetrators today do they tend to be um, state sponsored, or are they still the vast majority of the breaches that you see? Uh, you know, focused on just private malicious individuals trying to steal uh, from honest, hardworking people. Well, we, we see both. I think state sponsorship is definitely very rampant. Uh, I think they, state sponsors tend to focus on uh, the bigger hits, but they also are looking at you know lower middle market, middle market companies as well. They tend to hit a lot of them at the same time. Um, the reality is, is regardless of where it comes from, it's, it's kind of the same loss of private information. You have to react um, the same way when you lose private information. So um, it's um, it's an unfortunate reality that, you know, Foreign governments have dedicated a lot of resources to getting access to our information, and sometimes those resources are allocated in areas where, um, you know, it's just it's the small business, it's Main Street America, um, which is the lifeblood of America, and if they can help harm it, they're going to. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so uh, just real quickly to run this down, and not even real quickly, but just to run this down one last time, if if I'm in my uh, company at Evolution mm-hmm. here, and I've told you that we've we've had a couple of attempted uh, um, incidents here ourselves. Um, what is the progression? Uh, you first, you know, share it with your your disaster response team, who you've already mm-hmm. done a a trial run with, so you know what you're talking about. Let's assume that, uh, and then and then who do you call? Do you call Oswald Companies? Do you call your lawyer? Do you call uh, the police, yeah, I, you know, what do you, yeah, what I do would you know. Do? <laughs> I recommend you call your cyber attorney first. Uh, uh, not a generalist, of course, a, a true cyber attorney expert. Um, and then I would say call your insurance agent because getting back to, uh, if you don't, even if you don't have a cyber policy, there might be some other areas and, um, we can help clients find, uh, local forensics because we've been through it several times, local, um, local folks to help them out, public relations, if they, if they need some guidance in that space. Probably the most important thing I could say is don't use the, the B word or the breach word. You don't want to say that word. You don't want to write that word. Um, you want to talk about it as an event or an, a potential incident. And you don't call it a breach until uh, an attorney calls it a breach. Um, and maybe not even then. Let them guide you on that. So be very careful about your communications. I know Target took a lot of uh, criticism because they, uh, there was clear documentation that they were very well aware that they had a breach and, and made uh, intentional decisions to try to capture as much of the holiday shopping season before they went public with it. Um, so definitely be careful with your communications. And then uh, earlier in the, in the show, I mentioned that um, you should definitely act prudently but not prematurely relative to your notifications. So... You want to make sure that you uh, are in compliance with all the state requirements, but you want to try to avoid reputational injury that's unnecessary. So you don't want to notify 
and then two weeks later, based on forensics findings, say, oh, we actually didn't have a breach because it's difficult to try to to get back uh, the reputational. Right, right. And so earlier, so so on your team, if you were if you were uh, thinking about. Uh, you know, I mean, to me, it's like if you're going to have a disaster team, you want to have at least the name of an individual in advance. So mm-hmm. you had mentioned, uh, you know, cybersecurity lawyer expert, not just your general corporate lawyer. I think you right. had also mentioned a, you know, having a PR firm that has, right. uh, you know, expertise in in this. Obviously, your insurance company, Oswald Companies, mm-hmm. for instance, uh, would would be on that team as well. Uh, who who else uh, should be on that team uh, to not only stop you, you know any incident, but also to um, I guess uh, manage any any damage or or both externally and and internally. Am I missing somebody right. in there? Uh, I would say one other person you might want to have handy um, is the name of a well, uh, you should establish, if you choose to buy a cyber policy, which of course I highly recommend, um, I would say establish a connection with that uh, first responder or that breach coach before you have an incident. And it's unfortunate, but uh, we try to encourage our clients to all um, participate in what we call an onboarding call. Um, where you get online with your um, insurance company and they kind of walk you through this is how it should work and this is what you can expect. And that way when something bad happens, it's, it's not the first time you've talked to the insurance company. Um, and we help to facilitate those calls and arrange them. And they can be really useful. Um, and, and the odd thing is, is most of the time when folks do it, they, they, so far they haven't had a breach, so maybe it's a way of protect, protecting yourself. I don't know. But um, I would encourage uh, any individual to not have their first discussion with their insurance carrier at the time of Reach have it at the time that you decide to purchase the policy. Is a breach coach somebody that you can find online? Is that somebody that you would find through your insurance carrier or your your cyber security lawyer? Um, the breach coach is someone who works for the insurance company, and uh, they are kind of like your quarterback in the uh, event of a breach. So it's good to have that relationship before you have a breach, just to know who to call, what to expect. Um, he will also, uh, you know, provide you with recommendations for uh, public relations firms in your area, um, as well as attorneys if you need help in that space. Um, just it, it basically, he encourages you to have your game plan ready, and then when you call him, the the breaches will go much more smoothly because you when you know what to expect and you know each other. Got it. Got it. Well, uh, we've covered a lot of ground here, Kim, and as always, you're extremely informative and uh, you articulate the message very, very well. And uh, our listeners at the second stage have definitely benefited from, from, I know I have, that's one huge benefit of having a show is I get to listen to uh, folks like yourself uh, every week. Uh, Anyway, um, that's all we have on the second stage. Uh, thank you for tuning in. As I said before, you can catch uh, this episode as well as all of our prior episodes on the Voice America Business Channel, which can be found at voiceamerica.com or on iTunes. Search for podcasts in the second stage. I'd like to thank all of our iTunes listeners. As, and uh, as you are listening, please don't forget to rate us and review us. As always, uh, we like to say here on the second stage, have passion for possibilities and look forward to having you next week. Kim, thank you for being on the show. Really appreciated your time. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Second Stage. Thank you for tuning in this week to The Second Stage. Please join Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson again next Monday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have a successful week. 